it was like, like, what the hell? How? I mean, I guess in more inappropriate language in our heads, but um, it's like, how the hell is this contractor going to really sue us for not paying him when he definitely did not finish the work that he was supposed to do? Have you ever asked yourself what can go wrong when investing in apartments? What challenges do investors face when dealing with such a large asset class? Well, on the No BS Apartment Investing Podcast, we place expert professionals on the hot seat, ask them the tough questions that may be running through your mind, all while removing the fluff that comes with apartment investing. We aim to put your mind at ease while showing you that investing in apartments is the way to financial freedom. And now for your host, Mark Caesar. Welcome back, everyone, to the No BS Apartment Investing Podcast, where we take away all the fluff and all the hype that is tied to apartment investing, and we bring you the real. And today, we have none other than Miss Nicole Pendergrass on the show, who will be talking about how she went from zero in real estate to getting her first deal done and all the in-between. Nicole, welcome to the platform. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Congrats on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And I know uh, for those who will be hearing that this is actually Thanksgiving. So I appreciate Nicole for, you know, just willingness, her willingness to actually jump on the show on Turkey Day to, to share her story with us. Oh, well, you know what? Same to you, too. But you know what? When there's a mission, you got to get it done. Right. Got to find the time. That's right. So let's just let's just go straight through it, Nicole. So tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and what what it is that you do. Okay, so I am a married mother of two toddlers, two and four. I'm still working my full time W two job, but I have been looking for that other way out, like that extra thing you know, financially and wealth building wise to take myself and my family to the next level. Um, so I've always been interested in real estate and looking at um, the, after the first seminar that I went to, I heard about real estate investing and I heard that a normal person could do it and actually could make, you know, a lot of money and be abundant and have freedoms that come along with wealth and all of those other things. Um, I said, oh, I think real estate is the way for me to, you know, really achieve what I wanted to achieve and not be stuck at a nine to five, which is already when I had been working maybe my W-2, two or three years um, from after college. And I already said, I don't know if this is what I'm going to do forever. Um, So I was looking for that next thing. Right. And Real estate, I tried other things and real estate just was the one that made me see the most possibilities. So from there, I started with all the newbie strategies like trying to wholesale and flipping single family, et cetera, et cetera. And I found my way into multifamily, which I had been exposed to before, but I always thought that was something I would have to do later on in my journey once I was more established or I had more units or more capital or whatever those other limiting beliefs were that I had about getting started in the multifamily space. Um, but we can go into it. But yeah, I definitely I was able to jump in and it doesn't take a lot really to get started. I, I think there are a lot of limiting beliefs out there on what you can accomplish 
But from where I started, when I first started studying real estate at all, I was fresh a couple of years out of college, like I said. So I had messed up my credit, of course, like as most college students do. And I had no money. You know, I was still, you know, making whatever. I don't even remember what I was making back then, but it wasn't enough, you know, to invest in real estate or any savings or anything. But yeah, so right now that's me. And I'm just trying to trudge along with, I think the motherhood thing is probably the biggest time consuming aspect of this whole journey. Um, And it's really making me be self-reflective and think about what matters in the time that like I'm doing this for my family so I can spend time with my girls. But in the beginning, it takes time away from them really. So Right now, luckily, we're with family, so they are distracted. Otherwise, you would see them screaming all in the background of my screen, which is every Zoom call. But yeah, so I, that's probably a longer than needed introduction. <laughs> no, it's fine. I totally understand. Uh, you know, I, I do. I have three boys myself, and they're always just running up and down. So to have the distraction, um, you know, someone distract them is, is pretty uh, helpful, to say the least. Yes, yes definitely. <laughs> So I know you said um, you started out your journey, you know, straight out of college. You found that real estate was that vehicle for you and you jumped into wholesale and take us through, you know, how did that work out? You know, was it hit or miss or <laughs> tell us tell us that story? Well, the wholesaling story, I, it could, I could extend it pretty long, but I will try to keep it as short and sweet as possible. But we, I, I started off on my own, you know, walking neighborhoods, looking for disheveled houses with the grass overgrown, blah, 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 taking out an address, looking up like I knew how to look up um, in the system, which is Acris in New York, how to look up the owner and their mailing address and all of that. And so I was doing that um, and sending out direct mail. And then I decided, you know what, I, this would be faster or not faster, but we could get more done if I had a team. And so I recruited two of my friends from undergrad and then another young lady that I met at a real estate meetup. And we had, were working together, the four of us, for maybe two years. We had an LLC. We had the business bank account. We met every week in um, the office, you know, one of the partners after all of her, you know, coworkers left, you know, it was empty. So we'd go into one of their conference rooms and meet there weekly for two years. And we'd go to the courthouses, we pull records, we send mailings. We just, we did everything that like you were supposed to do. We're out in the middle of the night hanging bandit signs, all of that. And we never closed a wholesaling deal. Never closed a wholesaling deal. And then the um, partnership ended up we were looking at other avenues. The partnership ended up dismantling because of some dishonest uh, monetary actions by one of the partners when we were trying to use business credit to leverage that and do some more things. But, you know, it's one of those things you live and you learn. You think you know someone after two years and not really. Well said. Um, I mean, I... I think I have a similar story too, because I, I, de- I definitely started wholesaling myself and I don't know if it's just New York. That's just hard to penetrate when it comes to wholesaling or what, because I started back in 2012 and after three years, I could not close a deal in New York. So it, I don't know. That's was, about the same time frame as me. Oh. Yeah. It was like, it was like 2012, 2013 and until like, yeah, 2014, 15 around that range. Um, 
Yeah, so that's funny. We were doing it in the same time frame. I don't even know what was, I wasn't in tune with market and looking up and analyzing information and looking at the economy. So I don't know actually what was happening in the real estate market at that time. But I don't think we were in a downturn, right? I don't know. I don't think so, but things were still expensive in New York. So, (laughs) yeah, so it's good to know that I'm not the only one who had that struggle. So I I, we can share that story. But I mean, that's that's definitely awesome, though. So from wholesaling, what did you pivot um towards next? Did you go straight into multifamily, or did you you know make a pit stop in between? Well, it wasn't really in between. It was kind of overlapping. So I had was a member of my of the New York City RIA. And from there, we had been going on property tours in different areas of the country. And we had went on a property tour to Detroit. And we had actually met, had a conference. It was a three-day weekend kind of thing. And we met with like professionals, realtors, property managers, attorneys, everyone in that market that you would need for your real estate investing. And we kind of, we liked what we saw happening. We saw things happening happening in downtown and we knew that it was still block by block and you kind of needed to know and have guidance to make sure you're investing in the right areas. Um, But a bunch of us got together and pulled money together to buy a few properties from the um, Detroit tax auction, which, you know, you get properties for a few thousand dollars. Um, So we did that. We did the rehab. Our goal was to rehab and rent to specialized needs type of populations But we didn't even get to that point because we were just renting at first to tenants just to gain our footing in that market. And we just came across so many issues that we ended up um, getting sued by a contractor who said we didn't pay him when he actually didn't finish the work. One of our properties, uh, as soon as we finished rehab, like a week later um, or a couple of weeks later, we got a notice in the mail that it was the property was being uh, cited for blight because Detroit was very strong on blighted properties, which means um, they're going to come and take your property and knock it down and bulldoze it like if it's messed up. And why they cited our property for blight is because it had caught fire right after the rehab was finished. And so we had to end up. Yeah, we did a cost analysis and getting it um, demolished and all that, it just would have been or rebuilding and redoing um, the rehab would have been just too much. So we ended up just deeding the property back to the city. And I actually recently looked it up and where I put the address in, there's like a huge space in between the two houses next to it. And it's like, oh, so the city just, that house no longer exists because the city just bulldozed it. Um, so yeah, and between that and the settling the lawsuit and just other issues there, we ended up just disposing of all the rest of the properties at a loss, really. Wow, that, that that's uh, definitely a scary story because um, I think a lot of people who jump into real estate don't expect to get sued or I think the misnomer is that, hey, you know, we're going to make money. We're going to get rich. We're going to, you know, drink Long Island iced tea by the beach. But there's so many. Oh, you are such a New Yorker. You said Long Island iced tea by the beach. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Brooklyn Brooklyn to the heart. heart. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I, this is what, this is what the premise of the show is to take away all that, that fluff. I mean, real estate does provide that flexibility where you can gain wealth you can gain financial freedom but it's a roller coaster and that's what i want everyone to understand and you know like how how did you manage with the lawsuit like did it freak you out or i mean that that came left field like what were the sentiments towards that um it was like 
Like, what the hell? How? I mean, I guess in more inappropriate language in our heads, but um, it's like, how the hell is this contractor going to really sue us for not paying him when he definitely did not finish the work that he was supposed to do? Like, we never had the final check punch list and any of that stuff. And there were items missing and stuff. And so I think we had paid him up to a certain point because, you know, you pay in phases. Um, yeah. You don't pay, you know, a contractor all their money up front. And so we don't even know why, what that, that was just one of those unscrupulous type of contractors. And there were a lot of professionals in the Detroit market that I have to say were purposefully frauding out-of-state investors because there were so many out-of-state investors and out-of-country investors coming to Detroit because properties were so cheap. And so they were able to just kind of finagle and do what they needed to do to, I guess, have a gain out of the situation. So I really don't, I can't tell you where that came from because that was left field to us as well. Um, And dealing with it, it just was, I, I, because, you know, this is a group. I'm not the head of the group. I was part of the operations team. So I did help with managing the day-to-day issues and, and growing and, you know, responsibility and talking back and forth with um, the property managers and all that kind of stuff. But when it came down to the decision to settle that, I don't know if that's a decision I would have made. Right. I, I probably, I'm a little bit more bullheaded than that. Um, and so I probably would have kind of challenged it more. Um, but the president and vice president of our little, our group, as far as like the director that we nominated to that position, really, um, they decided to settle it. And I guess that was just for ease of the headache of dealing with it and um, just whatever correspondence we did have from attorneys back and forth. It just was better. And I, I won't say that anything that I would have done would have turned out in a better situation because maybe we would have lost more money, you know, instead of settling, maybe there would have been a lawsuit that was completely in the contractor's favor. You know, you don't know how things would turn out. So, um, yeah, I mean, right now it's handling it was kind of just like dealing with the, the real estate um, attorneys and just doing that back and forth. But to me, it kind of, it just like sucked. But also the benefit of doing it in a large group there were about 20 of us. So it was a really big group. And we each put in $5,000 each. So in the grand scheme of things, losing $5,000, I mean, to some people, that's so much money. And it, it really is. Any any dollar that you have is worth you know, something. You, want, you don't want to lose it. But it's not going to make or break you. Most people, $5,000. And so that's why I, it's not like I took it lightly and I wanted to lose that money because I really had big hopes for the, the operations that we had out there and for the goals of the, of the group. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it sucks. But you're right. Like, you go in with these high ideals. We wanted to service special needs populations like single mothers or vets and things like that. So, like, so we wanted to bring good to the community um, and then just to get shysted like that is, you know, unfortunate. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, I this is definitely a lesson learned. So I'm glad that you were able to, you know, continue the process because a lot of people would end up quitting after that, but we kept going and fast forward, we're into multifamily. What brought like what made you pivot into multifamily? Why? Okay. So this is one of those things where 
you never know who you're going to meet along the journey and along the path. And you don't know why you had to go through certain situations to lead you to the next situation. So me joining the New York City RIA um, and me being in that investment group and actually working on the operations committee, um, one of the other ladies on the operations committee, we were very close and she was also a realtor and she had also had already invested in properties down in Atlanta. And she heard about a home buyer's grant that was going to give you $30,000 or something like that towards your closing costs. And she told me about that. She said, oh, they're happening at the Jacob Javits Center and you just have to go look it up. She gave me the information. I went over there and, you know, you just have to go early because it's first come, first serve. And I was able to get assigned a grant. And so from there, I had never been thinking about buying anything for myself because I don't have the money, right? Like, I don't know where this would even come from. I guess at that point, I had been working on my credit um, just because I didn't like creditors calling me. And so I was slowly paying them off. I was going through credit repair stuff. Not that I even knew why or what it was going to be for, but just because I knew I needed to have good credit. I knew I needed to fix these things that were on there that I messed up in college. Um, and so I just was going through those steps, not knowing, not having really a plan for what that was for in particular. Um, so I went, I got that grant and I started looking. So I put me into the thing that the, the reason I mentioned that is because it put me into a different mindset. New York City is a huge renter population, but to be in the mindset of owning um, and buying something is so much different than when you're looking for an apartment for rent. It just switches your mindset. I already knew about cutting expenses, increasing income. You need to have that disposable income in between. And for me, I didn't living in New York City, I was looking at all my bills like, okay, can I cut out my cable for $30? Can I cut out this? It's like anything I could cut, it's like, come on, it's not really, you know, moving the needle much, right? Um, yeah. so I'm like, am I gonna cut cable or 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 internet for $25, $30, however much it was back then? Um, because that's not really helping me much, right? And so my housing expense was probably the biggest thing that you could you could cut. So one of those things that I did do, oh, and you know what? Okay, so this is preface to me work looking for the building and getting actually that homeowner's grant is because I had that mindset of cutting expenses. I actually moved from my single family, or not single family, from my apartment that I had just got by myself. It was my first apartment on my own. You know, if you have an apartment by yourself in New York City, you're an adult. You're grown. You you yeah. know, you know what I mean? You're, you're on your own. You got your own place, all this stuff. So I had it. a studio. You made it, right? I had a studio apartment, cute studio apartment in a great, you know, area of Queens. And I was just doing these analyzations, these numbers, and I was looking at all my expenses and figuring out, like, how can I cut? And I said, the only way I can cut is to go get roommates and or go look for a room for rent instead of whole apartment for rent. So I purposefully downgraded my situation from having my own place, having made it, blah, 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 into looking for a room for rent for like half of what I was paying in rent at for my own place. And probably actually even less than that. I was looking for a room for like $500. So I figured, okay, I'll pay $500 a month for my housing. And I found something for like seven. So, okay. So I did that. So that also gave me that extra cushion of money to save. And I don't even remember actively saving it. Right. I just knew that I needed that gap in like some more disposable income just to 
for whatever. And I didn't even have a plan of what I was doing with it. Like, again, this is something I was taking action based on things I had seen and heard from other people who were experienced and successful from them doing and knowing I needed to implement it, but not knowing what for. So I just was making those moves and making those sacrifices because I knew I needed to do it. So I guess that helped me save up, that helped me pay down debt, that helped me do all those things. So by the time this opportunity came to get this homeowner's grant and start looking for property, my credit was better. You know, it's not where it was today, but it was good enough to be able to close on FHA kind of mortgage. And I had a little bit of savings, like a couple thousand dollars. So like with three and a half percent down, a $200,000 apartment, you know, is not that much to come out of pocket, it's like $5,000 or something like that. I don't, I don't even know the math. Don't quote me on that. But in any case, so that's basically where I, I was at financially when I started looking for a property. And I was looking really for condos and not co-ops. I was just looking for condos because the grant had timelines on it and deadlines. And I knew I really wanted a multifamily. I wanted to house hack, but I wasn't going to have time to find the property that I needed to find with that timeline. And I was pre-approved for $200,000. I can't buy a multifamily building for $200,000. Like I just, I didn't know anything about the rents helping your income or if if that's something that people don't know, 75% of the rental income from the other units that you're not living in will be added to your income to help you qualify for the loan on a debt to income basis. So if people are looking at multifamilies, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be approved and qualify for that property solely on your income. Some of the rent will help towards that. But I didn't know that at that time. And so I was just looking for this condo. I was in contract probably with two condos that ended up falling through for whatever reason. One of the condo board managers, the HOA managers, she kind of liked me. She felt bad that the other one fell through and my second one fell through. So she let me move into the second one on a uh, first come, like first right of refru- refusal type of basis. So I moved in as a renter. And as soon as they cleared some lien that was on the property, then I would be able to, I would have the first right of refusal to purchase. In that case, the grant expired because I had a certain time frame, So I couldn't even use the grant anymore. So I'm still living in this property, like, okay, well, at least I got first right of refusal. Um, I decided to do a multifamily uh direct mail campaign because I had learned about the direct mail campaign in my wholesaling days. And guess what? Even though I never closed a wholesaling deal, I still use those strategies and tools that I use that I had learned to market for a multifamily building. I said, now I have all the time in the world because these didn't work out. But, you know, let me use that time wisely. Let me look for what I originally wanted from the first time. And so I just mailed out in certain zip codes of the Bronx uh, all the three and four family properties because I knew two units wasn't enough. I wanted more units. And the property that I bought ended up coming from that direct mail campaign. Wow. what that That is quite a story. Um, you know, very resilient. Uh, using what you have and what you've learned from past experiences to get to where you're at. That is awesome. So downsizing, uh, looking at, you know, working on the credit, then, you know, grant falls through. Now you have your first deal. You house hacked it. Let's go to let's go a little further now. Now you're actually. So you're starting out as an investor through a house hack. Now you're actually looking to become a full fledged investor where you're not living in the property yourself. So 
How did that come about now? Okay. Um, so with the house hack, and I'll I'll shorten this just because I know we will we'll have to split this into two episodes. <laughs> but um, so the house hack, I ended up, you know, I was very thirsty. I wanted a property so bad. Um, and so I maybe made some concessions that I shouldn't have because I had had already two failed condos. This was, you know, a three-family house that was basically moving ready. Um, it had been vacant, it was built in 2007, it had been vacant that entire time. Time until the person I bought it from bought it because he was a rehabber, rehabber with air quotes for people listening and not watching. Um, because I don't actually know what he fixed to the property and what was original to the property. I never got like any kind of scope of work of things that were new, what was done. Um, there were a lot of promises he made to me that were not upkept. He ended up the property was vacant when I first found it and or when I first toured and he ended up we agreed that he would place tennis for me because he's an experienced real estate investor he would place tennis for me he would find me just the best tennis tenants don't worry don't worry have no concern I'm going to find you the best people the best people um, but I would also be able to approve or deny any applications before they moved in that was one of my you know requirements Okay, okay, no problem. It's taken months, months, months because this was a long closing. It probably took us like eight months to close. And I don't know why all the, the craziness wow. was happening. But yeah, I don't I don't even have any I didn't I didn't know any better because I had never bought a property before. I didn't realize, but it's kind of like the bank drags their feet when they want something from you. They say, Oh, can we get this expeditiously or whatever uh, you know, the, the phrase they put on the bottom of everything is like, you know, ex expedite or whatever. Um, yeah. and so it's like I gotta the second they email me, it's like I gotta oh, okay, I gotta get them this, I gotta get them this. But then when I send them something, it's like crickets. For weeks and yeah. weeks and weeks. Like, what is this? But in any case, so he said he was going to give me the best tennis. Um, months would go by. Finally, one day I asked, like, okay, what's going on with the tenants? Like, he said, oh, yeah. One tenant moved in last week and the next tenant's moving in this Saturday. And I'm like, but what happened to my applications? I didn't, I was supposed to approve any applications. He said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Get the best tenants. You know, I'm going to get you the best tenants. So we closed. At the closing table, I saw, I didn't get the applications until we were sitting at the closing table that the seller, the, yeah, the, the seller that I bought it from, he didn't, he doesn't attend closing. He sends his lawyers to his closings. That's how like busy he is and how much he does real estate or whatever and how successful. He doesn't go to closing. So he wasn't there. So his lawyer gives me the tenant applications and I see that he rented them for less money than he told me he was going to rent them for. And he put them in a two year lease. So that already put me at a disadvantage. Now, I could have negotiated that at the closing table, but I didn't know anything about that. Like, I could have equally, like, just easily tallied up how much that difference in rent was from the amount of time frame, like the two years, and say, okay, I need a seller concession for that difference or something. I could have just come up with anything. But of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I came up with all these ideas when I'm complaining to myself in my head after the fact. But in that moment, I wanted to close. Like this has been eight months. We're finally at the closing table. Like there's no way I'm walking away from this deal. So I just accepted it because I didn't know there was anything I could do about it. And I don't even know if negotiating then would have worked and what I would have gotten out of that, but I could have done some pushback, you know? Um, in any case, um, after closing, there were a couple of things I had to end up putting a few thousand dollars out for. One, two, mainly fixing the plumbing issue because there was a meter there in the property physically, but the water department didn't have um, 
record of a meter ever being there. So they were billing the seller for being not metered, which is illegal in New York City. And he was trying to fight them, but he must have been half-heartedly fighting them because I was on the phone with them, I don't know how many times. And after just being on the phone so many times, people, I finally put the pieces together and realized what happened and that they just didn't have the paperwork from whenever it was built in 2007, whoever built the building, the developers never finally submitted that final paperwork and all the deeds and whatever they needed, um, not the deeds, but the uh, licensing, the um, all the permits and stuff. And so they never had documentation of a meter being there, even though there was physically a meter there. So I had to replace that, which cost me like $4,000 for a permit. And then the plumber I hired pulled the wrong permit. And you can't just... You you can't just you can't transfer permit fees from one department to another department. And because the new department, the permit that he needed was in a whole other department, we had to pay four thousand dollars again and we couldn't get refunded. And so I fought with that plumber a lot about who was responsible for paying for that. Like, I don't know what permits you're supposed to put. I'm not a plumber or contractor like you're supposed. That's why I hired you. You're supposed to be the professional. You're supposed to know these things. Right. I don't even remember what the resolution of that was, but I know how much he was fighting that he did not have the money to do that. And I, I don't know if we did. I just paid him and paid him at cost and none of the extra money that he would have gotten as profit or for him to take home or whatever it was. But in any case, I still wasn't happy with that either, but it had to get done right on the owner. And so after that, so that's just like right after we closed, like a couple of months after we closed. And then the following year, one of the tenants... Uh, was a, a three-bedroom apartment, uh, brother, sister, and girlfriend. So the brother, the the brother and the girlfriend stopped paying me their portion of the rent. Um, so for about six months, I wasn't getting their portion of the rent, and I would kept going back and forth with them, trying to see what was happening. They needed help with anything, like we weren't really going to pay, blah blah blah. So I finally ended up having to file eviction paperwork with an attorney, um, and. There, I think I filed in like November. The lease was over in January. So this is kind of like now the end of that two-year lease. The lease over in January. So they moved out. But the sister who had been still paying me her portion that whole time, then she stopped paying me rent. And so now that was for like another, because I had to go to court. And I was probably six or seven months pregnant at this time, or maybe five or six months pregnant at this time. So I ended up having to, because court kept getting postponed because either my attorney didn't show up or there was certain paperwork or whatever that wasn't filled out or whatever that was. And so I ended up physically taking my pregnant behind to the courthouse so I could waddle up in there and let them see that like, I don't, I am not a rich white apartment owner. Like I am like a struggling mom about to be mom and I need my money like I can't afford this mortgage without the rent coming in right that's not why I bought this place right exactly. and so I had to I had to go through all that with the eviction and just going back and forth with a tenant and I tried to really be helpful because she had been paying me up till her brother and the girlfriend moved out so I was working with her and you know trying to be sympathetic and figuring out how we can get assistance and all this other stuff and it just like by time the courts in New York City are so long by time the Mm -hmm. marshal actually physically came and removed her because of course she did not move or leave or vacate early until the marshal actually came and removed her that was like in September 
So from I had not been getting rent or I got half the rent from like July, August of the year before until, you know, January. And then from January to September, I got no rent and the marshal came and moved her out. And then I had to pay to get the apartment turned, um, you know, and that's a couple of grand. And then I had to pay for, you know, trying to enforce the judgment that I got, which the courts give you the judgment, but then there's no way to enforce it. You actually have to go pay, you know, a marshal or someone else to actually do an investigation, find bank accounts, find jobs, do all that stuff so you can garnish money or, or charge them or whatever. And I still to this day have not like gotten any, not one red penny from that judgment. And I think it was wow. like probably twenty $25,000 or something like that. Um, so yeah. And, and you know what? And I said, I was going to make that short and I just, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's okay. <laughs> but, it's um, yeah, but you know what? End of the day where I'm at right now, I, uh, I hate to say, I won't say I do it exactly the same way over again, but I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I'll say that. I wouldn't trade it because it definitely got me to where I'm at now, which is a couple of years later, I found somebody who places really good tenants, like a a, um, a realtor who places really good tenants. I've been using him for years now. He's always got me people who pay one time every month, always great tenants. Even when I have turnover, I just hand it over to him and he finds me someone. Um, he gives me full you know, paperwork and documentation before, you know, if anybody who he thinks is a good fit, he doesn't send me anybody who's fluff. Um, and then after a couple of years, there was a lot of appreciation in the Bronx and I was able to cash out refi um, a good amount of equity that I was able to use to one, put me into a multifamily group and community uh, doing commercial real estate because I knew that I wanted to continue in multifamily uh, arena. And so I joined a multifamily community. I joined a mastermind after that. And I also used that money to start one of the bank on yourself, infinite banking type of life insurance policies. Um, I invested in some silver. Like I just was trying to put that money in so many different buckets. Um, And then I also saved some of it for a down pay for that. I actually ended up using as a down payment on a six unit building that I was able to buy from leveraging the network of the multifamily community that I had joined. So it all kind of snowballed. And from there, like I've just been spending the past year repositioning the six unit and getting it re-rented and rents are much higher than we thought they were going to be. Um, the, the rehab is going, the rehabs were a little bit more extensive than I thought, um, as far as how much per unit we need to spend to turn it. Um, but at the end of the day, we should be able to cash out, refi that building in the spring. And this should be a really good payout. I think we've almost doubled the value of the building. So all of it's like, if you, you want to be in real estate, you got to get, thick skin. You got to learn how to roll with the punches. You got to just keep going. You have to have that why that's going to keep make, like driving you forward because no path in real estate is straightforward. And there's always going to be road bumps and bruises and just issues and crap that you have to deal with. And I have so many gray hairs now, and I'm sure it's because of the journey I put myself on all this time. But at this point, I wish gray hairs could recede because things are starting to get better. <laughs> So they should just go backwards, right? But you know, who knows? I don't know. If that's something. Uh, no, listen. That is that is an awesome story, and I, I will attest it to to your tenacity to that Brooke, to that New York hustle. So just 
That, that's that yeah, that hustle. could be, yeah. That could definitely be it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, c- congrats on, on the deal, um, on the six family. So, you know, to be able to, to go through so many layers of issues, you know, again, from fail wholesaling, you know, P, um, partnerships that failed, lawsuit, tenant issues and so forth. And now you actually are, you're a commercial multifamily owner and you're able to, implement all those lessons that you've learned along the way that again that's what shows that that makes you a problem solver because again i, I tell everyone you know whole real estate is all about problem solving people have a problem you're coming in with your expertise and you're solving that problem and the payout will be there so congrats on that so what is the secret to your what is your secret to success Um, that's hard because I actually still don't consider myself successful. Um, and I guess successful is a range and I guess it depends on what, um, what accomplishment you are referring to. Cause I have had accomplishments and I guess that can be considered success. But for right now, I, I think my momentum is being created through, um, just having that strong why and just having that burning desire for more, right? I just I just knew I, there's more to life. I see other people living it. I see that there's wealthy people out there. I see there's people successful in real estate and making, you know, all this money, having all these options because of the money that they have. And they don't have to sit in a nine to five or, you know, they are, their family can live wherever and they have nice just nice things and a nice living area and space and all that. Um, so I just knew it was possible. And I'm like, if it's possible for them, why is it not possible for me? Right. Why can't I put my family in a better position? Why can't I retire my mom who I saw growing up work two to three jobs to support a family of seven? Right. I want her, I don't want her retiring at 80 because you know, there's no pension or she can't live the lifestyle she wants or whatever. Like, if she wants a Hummer at 65 to be driving around, all right, mom, I'm gonna get you this Hummer. Like, I, I gotta look up prices of Hummers. I don't even know how much those things cost. But in any case, yeah, so, and then now that I have my my daughters and my family, and I just, I just want more, and I want my legacy and generational wealth to be there so that every generation is kind of starting at a higher level than the last. Um, so if you're if you're why and um, that drive within you is strong enough, uh, you can work your way through anything. Just developing that grit and tenacity, and I think that's that's really what I have. And I don't know where I got it from, except for to say seeing my mom just working so hard over the years that she that lady has some strong grit, and I you know she's out there, so I don't want her to hear me say it. <laughs> Understood. That's well said. So what is the biggest failure you've learned from? Trusting someone's intentions just because they're more experienced than you. Hmm. And I think that goes back to um, the seller I bought my three family from. Because he, on the surface, seemed like he was so nice and he had these great intentions for helping me. He wasn't trying to help me. He was trying to help himself. You know, like he wasn't placing tenants for me. He was placing tenants because this closing was taking a long time and he was losing money every month that it wasn't filled. You know, so it's one of those kind of things that hindsight is twenty twenty. 
I think I said that before, but uh, that's why podcasts like yours exist. So that hindsight doesn't have to be 2020. Learn from my hindsight and don't yep. do it. There you, go. there you go. Well said. Very well said. What is the biggest surprise that you found in your success and what happened that you did not expect? Um. I think actually something almost unrelated, but just leveraging my experiences into social media and telling my story has really um, opened the doors of people reaching out to me and saying that I'm inspirational and saying that, you know, the journey is something that they, you know, they want to do or they look up to how I've kept going and just opportunities to speak with people and kind of encourage them and give them insight or um, advice based on what I've experienced that has been something that I just didn't expect um, because when I first started posting, it, I actually was forced by my mentors to do that because I thought that I only did a three family deal and I no one, I didn't have enough. Um, this was before I bought the six unit when I started posting. But at that point I said, I didn't know enough. I haven't done enough. I don't have a big enough portfolio to share my experience or my journey because I'm not successful yet. Right. Um, so who's going to listen to me or who wants to see that? Like, I don't, I don't really know enough to say enough, like to post about it um, on a regular basis, but doing it and actually just starting and getting it out there. It definitely, there are people who want to be where you are, no matter if you think where you are is where you want to be in the future. There's always somebody coming behind you that you can help forward with the information that you have and experiences that you have, whether you've even ever closed a real estate property at all. Like you don't even have to have any deals. And there's some experience or knowledge that you have that would be helpful to somebody else. And I think I've learned that it's selfish to keep that to yourself because of your own insecurities. Just put it out there because you're helping someone else. Unless that's not your goal in life, you don't want to help people, then keep it to yourself. Powerful, <laughs> truly powerful. What is the least favorite part of your job as an investor, whether it be a role or position or anything else in between? Crap. Oh, man. They, they all have their ups and downs. <laughs> what would I say my least um, favorite? Uh, I guess that's really hard. Um, but I want to say, like, even though I think I'm good at asset management, um, I think just doing that tug of war negotiating with property managers and trying to fit into what how they operate, but how you want your property operated and that that fine line of um, dealing with your your property managers or with tenants, because I mean, but I'm trying to get out of dealing with tenants and just transition into only asset management. So I think I'm good at that just because of my experience dealing with tenants. But at the same time, um, if that's something I could get away with, I think, yeah. I would like to not have to asset manage, but that's the end goal, right? Like you're active now, so you could be passive later. Nice. So a mother of two, uh, a landlord, a business owner, and still a W-2 employee, what is the best uh, time hack that has helped you navigate and manage all of these roles that you're, that you're, or these hats that you're wearing right now? 
Um, I, I'll be completely honest. Instead of trying to give a fluff answer, because this, this is the no BS <laughs> podcast, right? I have Stuff. not mastered. I don't have a time pack. I, I have not mastered. I, and I like my sleep. So <laughs> I'm not one that can, like, I'm an early bird, but I'm not as much of a night owl. So it's, you know, one of my things is, oh, when I get home from work and I put the kids down and all like, you know, do some real estate for a couple of hours. And the way my kids' bedtime routines are set up right now, I kind of need to be in there with them. <laughs> so I end up falling asleep and then I wake up at like three or four in the morning. And I'm like, crap. I didn't do what I wanted to do. And then I'm like, well, I'm not getting up at three or four in the morning. So I go back to sleep until five until it's time for me to get up for work. So maybe I do need to get up at four in the morning. But um, I do try to at least get myself mentally and physically in a place. So I, I do wake up in the mornings and try to do my exercise like at 530, something like that, just to like physically get me invigorated for the day. And I try to use my mornings um when I actually get to work, but there's before patients or anyone else comes and I have some downtime on the computer just to like bang out some stuff and get my mind right and listen to podcasts and things on the on the commute, on the train. Sometimes I'll do like journaling or taking notes um, on the train because that's kind of where my quiet time is and my commute that I actually have. Um, and then whatever, whatever downtime I have throughout the day that I can just like do a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, because otherwise it's just too piecemeal. And once I get home, like I'll do, I'll be working on something for like literally 30 seconds. And it's like, mom, mom, mom. And then I got to stop and handle that. And then I'm down and another 30 seconds, mom, mom, mom. So it's literally like, this is how I get stuff done. <laughs> it's like a choppy gotcha. kind of, um, so I actually don't have a hack and I don't, I just, you know, I just changed my mindset into, slow and steady wins the race, like the turtle, the tortoise in the hair, that kind of stuff. Just like doing microscopic, like needle point movements every day will eventually get you way further than you thought. And comparison, comparing yourself to other people who just seem to be blowing it out of the water and just like accomplishing so much, that will really get you discouraged and you just can't look at that. You have to focus on your journey, your life, what you can accomplish and just keep your eye on the prize. Just do one little small thing each day. And one day you'll look up and you'll be like, wow, I can't believe I accomplished all of that. You know, cause I didn't feel in the moment, like I was doing enough. So that's something that I have to tell myself all the time as well. And slowly I've been accomplishing a lot more than I thought. If I look back at the beginning of the year to now I've just done so much and I don't know how or when it happened, but it just slowly built up over time. Okay. I love it. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely real. There was no fluff to that. So I appreciate you sharing that for sure. So we're going to come down. We're winding down to a few, uh, we're winding down to this episode. Just a few more questions for you. So you are the founder and CEO of Noir Vest Holding. Uh, do tell us a little bit more about the company, the name and what's next up for the company. Okay, so Noir Vest Holdings is Noir, if you don't know, is French for black. And so I just put that with invest, so Noir Vest, um, really because I want to change the financial position of minorities and underprivileged, disenfranchised communities, all of that, marginalized populations. Um, I think we need to change the face of wealth 
like what wealth looks like in our minds when we think of somebody who's wealthy. When you think of someone wealthy, most of us think of the same kind of stereotypical image. And I want to change what that looks like to people. I want to help close the wealth gap. And I think real estate is a super strong way for people to do that. Um, And there's so many ways to skin a cat. I've chosen multifamily specifically as my niche within real estate. Um, And there's reasons I can, if anyone's interested, there's more reasons as to why I like multifamily than some of the other asset classes. But the mission of Norvest is to really help us and our communities grab some of that pie and really open that door to investing and change people's mindsets about what investing looks like and giving alternatives to just the stock market and, and bonds and other things that the financial like institution want you to invest in because they make fees off of your money, probably more fees than what you actually make in um, in growth over a certain period of time. And people don't realize that because they don't look at the fine print. They just do what's easy and just think about it. The financial world, Wall Street, has made it easy for a reason because they profit off of that. So they want it to be easy for you to invest in what they have. Um, So just opening our mindset to that things are are different and we have different opportunities available to us. And I just want to open that that gate of uh, potential for investing into multifamily and something that is historically you know, only for people who have a certain net worth or whatever that is. And I just want that to be a more widespread opportunity. Awesome. So if you had, uh, let's say your top three tips that you would have for someone who's looking to get into the real estate space, being on the residential side, multifamily side, what would those top three tips be for them? So one is education. But there's a difference between educating and over-educating to the point that you get analysis paralysis. So you do, you do need to know some information about it. Um, and it's not always the free information. If you have to pay to play, I suggest that because sometimes that weeds out the tire kickers, um, especially when you're networking within a group. Um, you want people who are more serious about what, what they're doing and being in that arena. Uh, I learned that because you know I have a failed partnership, but that has not stopped me from partnering with people because I know partnering, especially in real estate, is the way to you know getting deals done. But you need to make sure you're surrounding your, yourself with like-minded people who are in it for the right reasons, right, and who are actually going to do some of the work. So education, um, surround that. That guess that kind of goes into it. Surrounding yourself with the the right type of group mentorship, coaching, whatever, even if you have to pay to be in that community, it kind of goes hand in hand. Um, So you need the education and the network. And um, I think self-development, actually. Uh, You need to know, kind of do a deep dive, look in the mirror, know what you're good at. And that's hard to know because sometimes people don't know what their gifts and their talents are. Um, It's hard to see the forest through the trees, What's that saying, right? Like if you get a bird's eye view, then you can see the whole forest. But if you're down on the ground, you can't see the forest in its totality. You can only see a couple of trees at a time. Um, So that's the same thing with learning yourself and learning your strengths and your weaknesses and all those things. And it's everybody has weaknesses. So it's not ashamed. It's not a a pitfall or downfall to have them, but you just need to be able to know and pinpoint them. And I wouldn't say go spend time strengthening your weaknesses. No. 
Don't do that. Strengthen your strengths and find somebody to compliment your weaknesses, who's strong with that. And that's who you need to partner with. But if you don't know what those are for yourself, it's going to be hard for you to go into a group and say, here's where I can add value. Right. If you're good with numbers, learn how to underwrite because you could probably pick it up very quickly and you can probably see the story through the numbers. And that's something that not everybody is gifted at. So if find where your strength is, then focus on what area of multifamily that talent is needed in and what you can do to develop that talent. And then take that strength to a group and use that to join in and get started. And that can be your value add to whatever property you guys are going to take down. I love it. I absolutely love it. Great tips. Now, Nicole, we're wrapping up or we're, or we're pretty much wrapping up now. So if anyone wanted to get in touch with you and just connect or ask a question, how would they do? How would they go about doing so? Um, actually, kind of the best way is on my website because all the links to all my social media are there. There's a um, messaging form. You can send me an email there. You can also sign up on my calendar link to schedule a call with me there. Um, so that's norbestholdings.com. I'm sure you'll have a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, so N-O-I-R-V-E-S-T holdings.com. And uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Those are the only three I use. I think three is enough. <laughs> But any case, um, yeah, so my my website directs you to any other place that you can find me and I'm active on all of them. So I would love to talk to anyone out there who is interested in hearing more or wants some more insights or whatever. I love talking about real estate. So please, please reach out. Awesome. And before I forget the last thing, a quick shameless plug. I know you're working on an amazing project. I don't want to spoil it, but can you give us a a little tidbit about what you're working on and what can we expect? Okay. So actually I am in the process of developing my own podcast um, with another partner. Her, Her name is Nicole. And it basically kind of ties into both of our businesses have the same type of model and mission. And so the podcast is basically a combination of that, of wanting to help people learn how to develop wealth and how to build generational wealth and not just the the fluff. Like we want to get deep. We want to know the insider tips and tricks, things that the wealthy people use that they don't want the masses to know. I, I, we really want to dig in deep on those and really, um, try to unveil and pull back the curtain, so to say, on what those strategies are and helping people learn how to create capital. If Even if they're working a W-2, how do you create that extra income? And then how do you grow it? Like what are different investment strategies and the pros and cons of different ones? And then how to also protect it so that it does last for generations. And it's not like, you know, Vanderbilt's versus Rockefeller's. You want to be a Rockefeller, not a Vanderbilt. If you don't know about that, you should look it up. Vanderbilt's don't have any money anymore. Not any money, but no one's a millionaire. But Rockefeller's have plenty of millionaires because of the way they set up their um, estate to carry on for generations. And that's something I just want us all to learn and know how to do. um, Because I know that I've heard projections of that the the net worth of the black community and minority communities would be like zero in 2050 or something crazy. And so I just, that just can't happen. And I don't see how that's possible. Um, so I'm just trying to do whatever I can do to help get that information out there and hoping and encouraging people to implement it. 
Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I definitely recommend you guys to keep an eye out for, for this amazing show that Nicole and Nicole will be dropping on. I mean, dropping out. So I will definitely uh, make sure that once it's live, I will definitely share it with you, the platform as well. With that being said, Nicole, it was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for sharing such an amazing story. I'm pretty sure we all will learn from it and it will help us become resilient and better and savvy investors. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and have a happy Thanksgiving. Likewise, thank you. And you guys, don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the platform. Um, you can visit uh, www.nobsapartmentinvesting.com or you can listen to this amazing episode with Nicole on all your major streaming platform site. Don't forget to leave a five-star review and also leave a written review as we would, this helps us grow the content, um, push out better content. It helps us grow this platform and push out this message of no BS in apartment. So until next time, we're out. Thank you for tuning in. And I hope you've gotten massive value from this episode. But before you leave, subscribe, download, and leave us your five-star review as we want to continue pumping you with massive value and content on the no BS apartment investing podcast. Until next time.